Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett. In this series, we want to demystify the worlds of finance and investment. We're going to be speaking with industry experts, strategists, fund managers, and financial planners. We'll hear from investment professionals who are at the top of their game, but also entrepreneurs who need investment, technology specialists disrupting the world of investment, and good old-fashioned active allocators of capital. Who is leading the charge? Who is disrupting? Who is being disrupted? How does the frenetic political and economic backdrop feed into the investment process and really understand why we invest in the first place? When Mark Zuckerberg founded Facebook, he told his staff to move fast and break things. And we all know that technology has moved fast and broken business models along the way. But it's not just technology. The shifting sands of geopolitics, environmental, social and governance issues have all fed in to paint a picture of an increasingly disruptive world. How do we approach buying companies for the long term against such a backdrop? In this, the first episode of the series, I'm talking to Jen Fisher, Head of Equities at Waverton. We introduce some of these disruptive forces and discuss how they feed into our investment process. We felt this was a good place to start for the series because a lot of the topics we introduce here, we're going to revisit later. This is the Why Invest podcast. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. Jen Fisher, Head of Equities here at Waverton. Welcome to the podcast. Jen, we're going to be talking about disruption. We're going to kick off with technological disruption. What effect does the threat of technological change have on our investment process at Waverton? Well, that's an interesting question because we, um, we looked at our investment process about three or four years ago um, and looked at putting a clearer framework around it um, and uh, an easier way to sort of articulate um, the criteria we look for um, when we are searching for sort of new investment ideas. And one of the things that was very much top of mind when we did that was the impact that technological change does have in terms of business models, consumer behaviour, um, because it has, since the advent of the digital age, has certainly accelerated massively. So we wanted to make sure that when within our investment criteria, we were taking into account those companies that are driving change, those that are adapting to it, either successfully or unsuccessfully. And perhaps at that stage, we were even thinking those that are unaffected by it. And as it turns out, really, there's no industry that isn't affected in some way by, by technological change. So it was very much in our thinking. And really, our the first of our criteria, which looks at um, durability, as we call it, which is really looking at a sustainable competitive advantage is really exactly that. We try to establish what is the competitive advantage that a company has. And traditionally, um, people have looked at things like the scale of a business. If it's a very uh, a, com- a company that has to have a lot of manufacturing plants, etc., we talk about scale. And there are obviously barriers to entry for new competitors coming in because it's very difficult to replicate that scale. It's very costly to do so. Um, and then I guess with a lot of the new digital platform companies, uh, people talk about network effects. 
quite a lot as a competitive advantage. And what this means is that uh, the more, say, a Facebook attracts users to its site, uh, the more advertisers then are attracted to its site because it's reaching more people and it becomes a virtuous circle because then people are more attracted to the site, et cetera, et cetera, and it goes, and it goes around in a, in, a, in a positive circle. So thinking about technology, do you think that it sits, uh, I mean, I suppose one can't be too broad brush about it, but does it sit as a cost centre within a cost center function within businesses or is it a sort of profit center um, market share gainer um, function do you think i suppose the word is almost it's an enabler Mm -hmm. but it's 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 really changed over time and again it really has accelerated because of the arrival of the internet and a digital platform has really, really enabled businesses to look at different ways um, to manage their business, whatever the business type can be. So, What do you think the step change was? Do you think it was the internet and, and connecting people over the internet? Or was it faster processing speed? Or what do you, where, what do you think is the, be the fastest step change? I think it's a combination of a, of a lot of those things. I think more recently, the step change has actually been the amount of data it's created, which has been, the growth of that has been explosive. And what that, the gathering of that data has enabled companies to do and I suppose the real step change more recently is in the use of what they call artificial intelligence or machine learning it's also uh, known as where basically we can use computers to slice and dice data um, taking the human error out of it exactly Um, yeah I see and to use that data to then make their businesses more efficient to target the right people Mm -hmm. etc so what would be an example of a a company that you think is using AI effectively? A well-known company that people would would, would know about, um, and perhaps it doesn't seem a very obvious example, but but Coca-Cola, for example, obviously one of the mm. big or the biggest soft beverage company in the world. And, Buffett favourite. <laughs> and, um, and it uses AI. Interestingly, it, it owns a lot of these vending machines, which obviously we, we see all over the place. Uh, and it uses the information that is coming back from those uh, vending machines to tell it automatically. And it has little cameras inbuilt, et cetera, so that it can see who is going, what are they buying. So they can now have this automatic fulfillment um, or refilling of, of, of the vending machines, whereas before it would have taken a man in a van to go along, check what they were out of stock of, um, and then send off the order to get it replenished and, and delivered. And now it just happens completely automatically. Who do you think, um, can you think of companies, this is probably a harder question, who is, is using it, is not adapting, um, who's being flat-footed perhaps? Well, I suppose, if I, uh, thinking about it perhaps in a slightly different way, a company, a sort of an, a, a legacy, perhaps, technology company that hasn't made the transition. Mm. Kodak. I mean, Kodak <laughs> didn't, and then they did. <laughs> um, and there are, there are certainly companies, um, you know, that, that, that haven't and have morphed into something quite different mm. and not very successfully. Mm. Um, and I suppose I'm thinking of things a bit like Xerox, you know, Kodak, you mentioned. Mm. Obviously, that's a... That's a, a um, a well-known or, or understandable example. Um, and then, I mean, perhaps not AI-specific, but technology-specific is obviously the, the sort of the growth of online retail is a very obvious one. And what that has meant for your traditional, what we call bricks-and-mortar retailers and, and shops on the high street. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we may come on to our e- e-commerce in a sec, okay. but let's go back to, um, um, if we go by sector, perhaps, mm-hmm. and, and, and let's think about consumer staples. Yeah. They live and die by the strength of their brand. Do you think technology has enabled them to increase their moats, um, increase their barriers to entry, or do you think that um, it has allowed new 
kids on the block, as it were. It's been a really um, interesting, I think, terrible word, but journey mm. for these people. Technological journey. <laughs> it's a banned phrase, by the way. <laughs> well, many. Uh, for, for the big branded manufacturers because, um, and I'll, I'll take a, again a well-known example, uh, Gillette, world's largest manufacturer of uh, razors and, and, and blades, and uh, certainly about 25 years ago, dominated the world market. It had about 65% market share globally, huge profit margins. Uh, and every time it introduced and you know, added a blade to its, its uh, razor blades, you know, the price went up and it took pricing every year. Well, it screwed the consumer, though, because customers were paying through the nose Absolutely. for their um, razor blades. Absolutely. And the thing about these big branded consumer products companies is that, you know, once you gain your brand loyalty, you gain scale. They had deep pockets to be able to have big national advertising campaigns on TV. They had the scale to distribute around, you know, region, US, but then internationally as well. So it became very difficult. That was their moat. That was their barrier to entry for small companies or small brands coming along. And that really changed significantly when the um with the with the with a sort of again a digital platform and um a, a good example of, of this was well and actually there are this is several industries that is, this affects because first of all you had big branded manufacturers who were reliant on TV broadcast networks to reach mm-hmm. their consumers they were the in terms of advertising. They were the gatekeepers, mm-hmm. as were the bricks and mortar retailers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course we had the advent of, of online retail. So that started to undermine that sort of traditional uh, distribution model and then you had other forms of media and people were no longer they were they were watching things online rather than watching on tv so again sort of the balance of power shifted uh, and the advertising dollars follow mm. where the consumers are going so going, yeah. um so they're going to the to the to, to the to the social media sites essentially and uh what it has enabled was a lot of small startup brands who wouldn't have been economically viable um to go to a third party manufacturer a third party distributor and even if they couldn't advertise online couldn't afford to they could use an influencer or a blogger or, or just perhaps even have a small amount of money but, but reach an enormous amount of people. Very it's much cheaper than having some enormous ad much campaign. Cheaper, run much by cheaper. Yeah. And very effective at reaching particular audiences. And so what happened was a lot of these small brands became, became very viable. And um, I think the big brands were in some instances very slow to adapt or to see the threat of that. And there's a brilliant example and um, Gillette is why I use that because, of course, they were incredibly expensive and the company had the pricing power and the consumer just had to accept the higher prices, which is in the States in around 2011, I think it was, to two friends talking in their garden over a bar- you know, to barbecue one night about the ridiculous cost of, of razor blades. And so they set up a business out of their garage, basically, where they, um, they found a third-party manufacturer of, of razors and blades uh, third-party distributor. They created a website, um, and it's called um, the Dollar Shave Club. You may or may not have heard of it. And um, what they did was they had a uh, you had a monthly subscription, and they would deliver to you a shave pack, and then they would deliver new blades every month. And it was substantially cheaper than mm. than than buying at the supermarket Gillette brand. But this is great. I mean, this presumably is capitalism in action. This is a old clunky incumbent that is resting on its laurels that has um, had a monopoly over its distribution all of a sudden gets completely wiped out or perhaps with Gillette's in Gillette's case doesn't get completely wiped out by a new better product 
better distribution, better brand. That's good news, isn't it? Yes, and for the consumers, yes. I mean, I think it wasn't necessarily a better product, but it was the the, the, the price uh, performance, you know, um, differential was was worth it to the consumer. Um, and uh, just they, they they when they launched, they launched with a YouTube video, and it went viral, and they had uh, twelve thousand orders in forty eight hours. I mean, this just shows you the power of sort of social media. Um, and they delivered that by, they fulfilled those by hand. <laughs> the wow. thing. Uh, and then, you know, fast forward a few years, they had millions of members and um, and they were bought out by Unilever mm. in 2012 wow. for a billion dollars. It's kind of interesting. It's like shaving as a service. It's like it's like the <laughs> ultimate SaaS model. Um, let's um, change sectors and mm-hmm. let's think about content because yep. this is a fascinating subject. Yep. Um, in again, you had old world media which was sort of heavily regulated through um, the equivalent, I suppose, of bricks and mortar distribution through the sort of um, old um, TV stations and, um, and cinemas. Um, how has content distribution changed in the last five years? Um, again, you know, the traditional, it was the traditional TV networks and then the pay TV networks. Um, and again, it was the, you know, the internet, um, the, the digital platform that started to, to change things. Um, so really, it was the birth of uh, what they call lots of acronyms in media mm-hmm. Direct DTC, direct to consumer, or um, SVOD, which is subscribe a video on we'll demand. We'll put these in the show notes. <laughs> uh, these are streaming services that you 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 know you pay your monthly subscription. Um, you can cancel at any time. You they're not programmed, so you basically access them on your your time on your sort of timetable. No ads, which a lot of people. Uh, much preferred. But again, who? Where do the economics go? And I think you're thinking. Um, we're talking about Netflix and Disney yes. and um, I suppose Amazon Prime. By disintermediating the traditional TV networks, does it mean that the content producers make more money, or does the platform um, host make more yeah. money? Who? Where are the economics go? I mean, that that shifted substantially because the power used to be with the networks, the actual distribution channel, because that was the way the advertisers could reach. Their, their audience, their consumers. Uh, so the, the power and the pricing power, I suppose, sat with the networks themselves. And it has shifted, really, um, as, the, as the number of channels um, uh, increased, um, where content, as they say, content mm-hmm. became the king. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was definitely a, a shift towards, the, I suppose, the studios creating the content and of course the new model the the streaming model the the netflix model is not reliant on advertising revenues uh it is the consumer that pays your subscription but they know that in order to attract uh subscribers they have to have great content so do you think the the consumer from the consumer's perspective they have let's say they have a budget of let's say 60 70 dollars a month that they want to spend on content and usually that went to the um, the TV channels uh, or the pay-per-view ch- channels. Do you think once we get after this shakeout, they'll still pay that £60? It's just that they'll have a Netflix subscription, a Disney subscription, an Amazon Prime subscription. But the, the consumer will be better off because they have much more choice. Yes. Do you think that's the, the way yes. we'll be heading? Yes. Um, again, 
a big technological change which favours the consumer. Yeah. Um, okay. And that's a general thematic, I think, of what the digital platform has enabled, hmm. in that it has enabled a more efficient service. One has it presents a really attractive value proposition hmm. to the consumer. But interestingly, in terms of choice and in terms of price and efficiency of delivery of its if, its if we were writing a re- research note, let's say probably not even that long ago, fifteen years ago, we were thinking about sustainable competitive advantages. You could probably write quite a thorough note on Unilever and saying, look, it's you can hang it on distribution, it's brand, um, resilient pricing power. We now roll forward 15 years. That strength of its business is nowhere near as strong because of the advent of technology. Yeah. Um, how do we um, do? You therefore, how do how does that go? How does that feature in our analysis? Do we therefore rate it at a lower valuation? Um, do we increase the risks of dis- of it being disrupted? How how does that feed through into the investment process? Yeah, well, so a company like Unilever or Procter and Gamble in America, you know, this all feeds through in that in order to continue growing, these companies have to spend more money because uh, if if, com- if if consumers are able to shop online. You know, there's, there's much more transparent pricing in the marketplace. So it tends to bring down the overall level of pricing, again, to the advantage of, of the consumer. So, you know, each revenue dollar for, for, for a Unilever is less profitable than it was. Plus, they are perhaps having to advertise through multiple channels now. So not just via TV networks, um, but also on, on some of the social media sites. So they're having to spend a lot of money to support their brands, plus... With a lot of little new nimble entrants, they're having to spend a lot of money in terms of R&D and, and, and creating new products and trying to, to keep up. So it's definitely changed the profit and return characteristics of some of these businesses. Not necessarily that they haven't continued to improve because these large companies have always been very adept at taking costs out and being very efficient. But it's certainly perhaps put a, put a sort of limit on, on how these high these margins can go. But ultimately... The better managed of these businesses do adapt uh, and they find out ways to make sure that they can either create their own online delivery system or reach their consumers via you know, um, multiple channels. And as we've seen many times, they end up acquiring a lot of these small, small companies. Changing tact a bit and thinking, moving on to geopolitical um, and regulatory risks um, to businesses. We have a world, well, we live in a world where uh, we have two opposing world superpowers that have quite different interpretations of capitalism, China and the US. As global investors, how do we compare and contrast the disruptive and regulatory risks under each system? As you t- say, two incredibly different um, ideologies, really, in terms of the two, these two huge, as you say, superpowers. Again, we, we, we look at it within the same framework. Um, but the factors are somewhat different. Um, and it's very interesting because in a, in a way, in, in say, America, the, the, the regulators are there to sort of protect the consumer. And of course, um, it's, you know, this is a, a culture which is around is freedom and, and privacy of people's data. And, and, and so the regulators very much are focused on the companies and how they behave. Whereas in China, it's almost the complete opposite. And China used the corporate sector in order to almost sort of um, keep tabs on, keep tabs on, on the them. consumers. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's coming at it from two completely different Would angles. it be fair to say that the, the Chinese authorities come down on content rather than data um, more than and it's kind of more than in America where data, the data gathering is heavily regulated meanwhile the content is less well regulated would that be a fair distinction yes I mean uh, yeah yes again it, it's sort of it's 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 diametrically opposed uh, because in China of course there's a lot of censorship about um, you know material that can be can be distributed via various different uh, media outlets. Um, but they work with the big tech companies to, to gather people's data. Um, and, and as you say, the reverse in the, in the US, where, uh, you know, as you say, less, less strictly regulated in terms of the content, um, but they are regulating what people can do with... Because of the different regulatory landscapes, does this stop us from investing in China? Should it stop us from investing in China? Because, you know, we can make, we can build brilliant models and um, write a superb investment case for um, investing in some of these, um, you know, big Chinese tech names. But if the returns go to the government or special interest groups over foreign investors, you know, what's the point? Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's certainly, uh, you know, investing in in Chinese companies is is definitely um, carries more risk for all the reasons that you say. Um, you know, the authorities there are unpredictable in terms of um, when they will step in. And there are many instances of asking companies to bail out a completely unrelated business. National service. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, or change the regulations that suddenly, you know, undermine the, the profitability of their, of their business. Um, so it does carry risk. And from an accounting transparency standpoint, certainly the quality of the data is is. is inferior to, to, to what we're sort of used to um, in, in, the, in the developed markets. Um, so there, there is that, and, and there's also the willingness of um, companies to communicate with the investment community, um, which obviously they're very used to doing in the US and Western Europe, uh, in, the, in the Far East. Um, so there are definitely more risks attached, and also it's just the quality of the accounting standards, mm-hmm. um, etc. So... We've got very used to certainly looking at American companies, um, the quality of the data. Now, that doesn't stop fraudulent behavior. And we know there have obviously been companies um, that, have, that have gone, that have had to liquidate because of accounting scandals. I'm not saying the American companies are perfect mm. by any means. But, but the regulatory framework is, is probably more is, robust. Yes, absolutely. And more supportive um, in, in protection of the shareholders in, in America. We do, we do it. I mean, we don't not invest in China, but but I suppose our way of, of looking at it, because obviously there's a huge growth opportunity in China. And, uh, you know, they have some of these sort of digital technology companies obviously rival some of those in the States with the Alibabas and Tencents and Baidus. But I think we have to take on board what the risks are. They are different risks. And we would want to see, you know, that reflected in the valuation. So perhaps we just wouldn't pay as high a price for a Chinese company that we like the equivalent in, in the States. Mm-hmm. I see. And on the sort of geopolitical side and the, the geopolitical mm-hmm. risk, how does that feed into the investment process? Um, you know, is it just another risk factor that we apply um, at a company level? Mm-hmm. Or is there, a, is there a broader sort of top-down um, um, process to price in uh, geopolitical risk? 
I think it's I think it's both. I think from our perspective on the equity side, it's very much looked at at the company level, and you're looking at the um, you know we, we we manage quite concentrated portfolios with sort of 30, 40 stocks. So you know we know these companies very well. So we would look at it on an individual basis and, and assess the, the the risks and opportunities, and, and as we would for for any um, any factor. Changing tack um, now. ESG is a huge topic. Um, for the investment community at the moment. Um, how do we incorporate ESG factors um, in our investment process? Yeah, ESG is a, is a really, and, and this is environmental, social and, and governance factors, and um, it's really become very prevalent in the press in the last few years. Um, but it's not really a new, it's not really a new thing. I suppose it's important to distinguish between what is ESG um, and what is ethical investing, because they are two, although they often get confused, they are two you know, different things. And ethical investing is, is really um, a reflection of people's beliefs. You know, they don't want to be investing in companies that make tobacco products or alcohol products or produce controversial weapons. Those are you know, quite common ones. So it's about what the company does and what it produces. And incorporating ESG factors into our sort of decision-making analysis of companies is really more about, okay, these are the risks or opportunities as it relates to ESNG. How is the company managing those risks and opportunities? It's a, it's a, it's a sort of a broader concept that's really much more, as I say, about the management of these um, of these ESG factors. So, so the difference, I suppose. So, um, we wouldn't therefore be um, adverse to investing in uh, an oil company, an arms company, as long as that we felt that it was moving in the right direction, absolutely, or, or managing the particular risks. risk. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I always say when we uh, we incorporate it, it's sort of naturally incorporated into our stock selection process because we look at it as we would any other factor that might affect the sustainable competitive advantage of a company and potentially impact either positively or negatively the free cash flow growth potential of that business. So we assess it like we would any other factor, whether that's a you know competitive technology um, or, or any other aspect that might affect the cost structure of your business. So the imposition of tariffs, which tends to raise the costs mm-hmm. for companies if they're if they're importing certain certain components from other parts of the world. So it's a natural part of the questions that we ask. Just as twenty five years ago, no one was asking about the disruptive impact of, mm. of the internet. But Things how, will always uh, change yeah. and develop. It's fluid. So it, 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 it's part of our um, due diligence on the company because we will say, uh, will a customer want to carry on buying that product given that their views on the impact on the environment or the social impact this is having on society it will be reflected in consumers' behaviour? Not only that, but, but but as we know, governments and regulators will step in and, and perhaps introduce tougher... So how is that different? How is our approach, which I think is, you know, we obviously apply uh, employ an active approach to um, uh, stock selection. How is that different to the passive ESGs, um, ESG products that are on the shelf that investors can buy? So for the passive products, which tend to be funds with, you know, maybe a couple of hundred stocks in them, um, it's impossible to know those companies so well um, that, that you know exactly you know where their risks lie and how they're managing them, what are their policies, what's their historic behaviour, etc. So the passives tend to use um, screens and there are a lot of specialist ESG research providers out there um, that provide 
they aggregate data, basically, and there's an enormous amount of data out there, as we know, and this is all publicly available information, uh, and they use algorithms and they aggregate this data, um, and then they apply... Uh, there are no standards, there are no industry standards as to how to do this. So inevitably, each company will have a view on, we think this aspect is more important versus that. So we're going to assign more importance to that. Now, that could completely be very different to the next research provider. So what tends to happen is that you can have one company that scored very differently from the other. So there's no consistency. That's, that's sort of the first issue. So for companies reliant on screening, um, you really have to go with one provider the other aspect is that this is all publicly available information. So these risk scores are based in a, at a sort of point in time and tend to be a bit backward looking. Um, and there's no, it doesn't involve any dialogue with the companies. It's not trying to understand what the company is doing now, how maybe their own technology is changing, how they're adapting to circumstances, which direction, as you mentioned, we look at the direction of travel because the company might be... a, a exposed to various environmental risks now, but the company might be actively, you know, trying to move it in a positive direction. And we would want to be invested in those companies because otherwise it's almost saying, well, this company does this now and it's never going to change, which obviously is not always the case. Do you think then from a from the company's point of view, um, are they able to, and I don't want to sound too cynical, but are they able to game these systems, these ESG scoring systems? Not really. I think the, the, the I think the issue with some of these risk scores are because they're just looking at data. Um, you know, they're they're sort of scrutinising all the financial statements, policies that are disclosed in their annual reports, and this, of course, is where again there are such differences in global mm. standards in terms of what China, is disclosed. China, I don't you see that. <laughs> So um, again, if you're comparing companies on a global basis, it's 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 not easy, and it's you have to try and know the company as well as as well as you can. But I think it's more the problem that because there's no active dialogue with the companies, and they're not understanding necessarily what what they're trying to do, or even how material something is to their business. And there's a classic example of a of a European software company that took a one of these ESG research providers to court because they had been given a negative score for non-disclosure of their waste of their wastewater treatment. And um, and their stance was, well, we're a software company and we, we the only water we use in our business is for our coffee coffee mm-hmm. machine and watering the plugs. So um, that's why I say when you look at data in isolation without putting it in the context of the company or knowing what they're trying to do, you can come up with some really misleading sort of results. That's not to say that these ESG research providers don't provide useful information because they do. There's a lot of very useful information that we can use in our due diligence. But So I don't think it's necessarily the companies that can influence those research providers. I think it's more that there's sometimes a misrepresentation. Mm, I see. What do you think ESG looks like in 10 years' time? Do you think it is a it is a um, system that is embedded in all active management processes? Well, it's interesting because I think I think our view of ESG is that it's part and parcel of doing fundamental research on a, on a company. Um, so it's just it's just an evolution of the way the world is going, and that consumers and governments are so much more aware of the harm that we're doing to the environment or the impact on society of certain companies' behaviour. Um, and that's really been highlighted, you know, especially with the pandemic, where 
you know, frontline workers, etc., and companies then recognising that they have a responsibility to look after the well-being of their employees, not just what they pay them, but their, their actual their well-being. Um, so th- this will have implications, and it, it's brought it to the fore, and it will continue to progress. I think in the way, in terms of the way people look at it, I mean, I'm to, to us, it's it's not a new concept. It's just part and parcel of things that are changing over time, and companies adapting to that, and those that are successfully adapting will be rewarded in terms of share price performance so I don't think I think the one thing I I, and maybe this is a little bit cynical but at the moment I think because people view it as or some people view it as a totally separate thing it's like they run in parallel a well-managed business is one thing ESG is another but actually they're not they're they're completely inextricably linked and I think the other thing if I'm being again a little bit cynical is we've had a period of time 10 years of a and, and I'm talking sort of before what happened this year, of low growth, low inflation, with very, very artificially low interest rates. And that backdrop has favoured those growth companies, specifically, as we know, in the tech space, uh, that have performed very well because they are growing, um, they are producing lots of free cash, will continue to do so in the future. Uh, and those are now valued um, uh, more highly. So we've seen 10 years, which have really markets have been driven upwards by, by a few very large tech companies. And of course, this year, we've seen a sort of a, a reinforcement of that with the pandemic, because a lot of these companies were then beneficiaries of, of what has happened. So they've continued to grow very nicely. Um, but we also have a health crisis. So of course, the healthcare stocks have done very well. Now, these are two sectors that score extremely well from an ESG perspective, because they're not big polluters. Uh, and they're generally seen, with one or two exceptions, to be doing social good. Mm, I can think of one or two. So, so um, we can come on to that. Um, so uh, we've had a long period of time where things that do not score well on an ESG perspective, like your oil companies and your heavy industrials and your mining companies, etc., uh, because we've had this low inflation, low growth environment, those are not companies that perform well. They need a cyclical recovery, uh, which we haven't seen. But interestingly, and this maybe is putting my contrarian hat on, they, those said companies, materials, mining, um, have had an under allocation of equity capital over the last, let's say, five years. Um, isn't there an opportunity there to take a, a contrarian view um, on the basis that they will, we will recover, you know, oil will continue to be drilled? Yes, I mean, I think this is the interesting thing. Because obviously a lot of money has flipped, has 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 gone into these ESG funds, um, and you know you wonder how much of that will continue. If we if we do see a sharp cyclical recovery and money will pour undoubtedly into the so-called you know, dirty industries, what the money flows will will, will look like, um, which is why I think. We have to be careful about confusing what is ESG versus ethical. Now, some people, quite rightly, have very strong beliefs in terms of they don't want to invest in a fossil fuel company or a tobacco company. And that's sort of slightly different because that's a very strong personal belief. But if we're really talking about ESG, we're talking about, as we've said before, the management of those risks. Um, so let's take an oil company, for example, if they were moving um, from you know dirty oil to cleaner oil that is a a positive managed a positively managed um yeah, uh, environmental risk yes That's and i think i think our view would also be um you know oil and gas is needed in, in all sorts of things uh you know not just to power cars <laughs> etc 
Um, oil and gas goes into uh, pharmaceutical products, it goes into uh, clothing, it goes into shoes, it goes into furniture, it goes into electronic devices, um, it goes into wind turbine, you know, the manufacture of... Uh, so, uh, you know, oil and gas is used in thousands and thousands of products that are used daily, and it's impossible to say, I mean, well, it, it's impossible to imagine that there are going to be something that can replace that anytime soon. So we need the oil and gas, we need oil and gas for quite some time. So I think we... we we would choose to support or potentially invest in a an oil and gas company that obviously it's it's still um, doesn't look great in terms of, of, of environmental impact. But uh, if they are trying to move their business, as you say, to to more renewable sources of energy, and a number of them have now set out these sort of carbon neutral targets, um, you know. Shell was one of the first. BP have recently followed. We would be more inclined to invest in that company that is trying to move in the right direction. Um, uh, so that is the way we would mm-hmm. we would look at it. Do you think? And going back to I think what you said on on ESG, some of these scoring systems are backward looking, um, and you know they score some of these high these highly rated um, tech names um, favorably. Is that not a they're falling into the trap of looking backwards? Because yeah, you know these tech companies control so much of our data, and you know we're sort of only at the tip of the iceberg in terms of the regulator coming in. Do the do ESG funds um, will they start to underallocate to tech names on the basis that they are scoring negatively on X? Quite, I mean, quite possibly, and it's an interesting one um, because if you think of examples of companies that have gone from being, you know, those that score well from a social perspective mm. to those, you know, Facebook is a classic example. Mm. Um, or G as well. I mean, they they yeah. um, place so yes. much stock to their um, employees. And 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 similarly, the founders tend to have voting control yeah. of the companies. So um, yes, they don't score particularly well on that either but I suppose initially the thought was wow it's giving you know the whole world the ability to communicate so easily the dollar shave and club can, <laughs> can um, so that was the sort of a seen as a social good now of course as, as we know as, as you rightly say as all this data has been gathered and then they were doing you know tracking people's activity in other apps at the same time if, if, if they were open at the same time as people were in, in, in the Facebook's site and then using this data and selling it on to third parties which is is clearly a complete invasion of, of people's sort of privacy um, and you know more recently with with um, with Facebook and this is interesting in terms of how companies are now taking a stand where the government in the US hasn't because you've seen a lot of the very big uh, advertisers um, in the in the state, well, actually global, so Unilever and Diageo and Procter and Gamble and Starbucks and Verizon and Coca Cola, who are boycotting advertising on Facebook because um, they'll be back. They they don't yeah, <laughs> they don't agree with uh, the sort of the lack of policing of, of content on Facebook and especially around things that are, uh, I suppose, racially divisive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's quite an interesting development in, in, in America and that's, ha- that's happened recently um, Jen Fisher, thank you very much Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett and our guest this week, Jen Fisher If you would like any more information on the topics covered in the podcast please go to our website at waverton.co.uk If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe to the show and rate it and maybe even tell your friends